So the good news is it appears that the recording device is, is working now. So this lecture will be recorded. Thank you to the student who posted last class, even though it wasn't recorded. Uh, so we've just finished the section on perceptual stage, which was the first stage in our three-stage model. I want to give you a test. All right? I do this every year at this time. Test the students' perceptual abilities. All right, so you need to watch on the screen here. And what you're going to do is see a group of basketball players passing the ball around. And your task is to count the number of passes that the team in white makes. All right, so it's going to tell you Awareness that. Awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? All right, so you're going to have to count. Ready? Go! The answer is... Answer is... 13. Awesome. Your perceptual abilities really aren't that good. How many of you saw the moonwalking bear? Seriously, there was a moonwalking bear went right through the middle of that group of people and none of us see it the first time, right? If you've, never, if you've seen this before, you see it. All right, so watch. 13. But, did you see the moonwalking bear? Go! There the bear is entering the picture. Alright. And so, your perceptual abilities Right? You all saw it the second time. Why? Because you knew what to look for. And that's what skilled performance is about. You were focused on one thing, which actually wasn't the right thing to be focused on. Well, we sucked you in. We told you to watch the passes from the white team. But many, many of our activities, that's what happens. No one coaches us on what to look for, what to pay attention to. We learn by trial and error. Right? which, as I've already identified, is a lousy way to learn something. Okay, let's carry on with the next stage in our information processing model, and that is the decision stage. So, we finished selective attention, which is the arrows at the top left. We went down to the perceptual stage. We took a couple lectures for that, and we're now on to the decision mechanism. We have four classes left, right? Today, we have Monday, Wednesday, and then the following Monday. Monday is an exam, so we actually have three lectures left. Today plus two more. All right, so decision mechanism. This is the uh, study guide, if you will, of things that we're going to be talking about and that you should review when, we're doing, uh, when you're doing exam prep. So what is the decision mechanism? Clearly, it's the part of our brains that decide what it is we should do. Did he just say something important? I should write it down? Or was that a useless piece of information? I'm going to ignore it and not do anything. We are making thousands of decisions every day. 
Every hour, I would suggest, we're probably making thousands of decisions. Do you pay attention to me, or do you listen to the person beside you or check your cell phone? So decision is simply the stage that processes information between perception and effector. We are still dealing with no movement occurring. Right? You've input the vision or the sound, but we have not started moving yet. We are still processing. So we're dealing with reaction time. Now, I'm going to talk about a number of different pieces that re re uh, correspond to this decision mechanism. The first one is choice reaction time. So on the screen, I have two examples or two scenarios. The one on the left is a very simple task. The purple light goes on, you press the key. That's pretty straightforward. It's referred to as simple reaction time or a one-choice situation. But if there's only one choice, there's no decision involved, right? Light is on, press the key. The example on the right is a three-choice condition. If the left-hand light goes on, you press the left-hand key. If the middle light goes on, you press the middle key. And if the right-hand light goes on, you press the right-hand key. So now you have to stop and think, which light is it? Oh yeah, what is my response? Oh, it's the right-hand light? I press the right-hand key. We're going to take some examples of this choice reaction time. We're going to look at the sport of North American football. All right? And we're going to talk about a position, a group of players called defensive backs, DBs. For those of you who don't know football, don't panic. I'll give you a brief explanation. The defensive back are these dudes right at the top of the screen that is guarding this guy that has the yellow circle around him. All right? So this guy here is a defensive back. All these people lined up next to each other are called offensive or defensive linemen. We're not worried about them. So this guy has two choices. If it's a passing play and his opponent runs down the field, his job is to go with him to prevent him from receiving a pass. So his job is to run backwards or then turn and run forwards and make sure he can't catch the ball. If, however, the quarterback hands the ball off to one of these guys who are running backs, then the defensive back forgets about the guy running down the field and comes to help tackle the ball carrier. So he has two choices. I run down the field because it's a passing play, or it's a running play and I come forward to try and tackle the person carrying the ball. Right? So a two-choice condition. For unskilled defensive backs, the amount of time it takes them to make the decision, is it a passing play or is it a running play, is about 150 milliseconds greater than reaction time. So if your reaction time is 200 milliseconds, the novice or inexperienced player is going to take another 150 milliseconds to make that decision. 
Oh, it's a running play. It's a passing play. Now, who cares about 150 milliseconds? Like, that's very fast. Well, 150 milliseconds is enough time for me to take one or two steps to get past you. And then you're chasing me. And I will catch the ball, and you can't prevent it. So in many uh, motor skills, 150 milliseconds is the difference between success and failure. Now, a skilled player, a highly skilled defensive back, can reduce this 150 milliseconds substantially. And they can almost make it disappear entirely. In other words, as soon as the situation presents itself, they know exactly what it's going to be. Passing play or running play. So they've gained 150 milliseconds over the novice performer. It makes a big difference. It's enough to make the difference between success and failure. Now, two researchers named Hick and Hyman were able to mathematically model so that you can predict a person's choice reaction time. So they created an equation that is very much like the equation we had last lecture. Same format. Y equals A plus B X. Same formula. The only thing that changes is what is x? How do you determine x? Well, x is log to the base 2 of the number of choices. Last class, remember what it was? It was 1 over log to the base 2x, 1 minus log to the base 2x2, all in brackets, right? It was a really ugly one. Today, it's a really nice one. Log to the base 2 of number of choices. Simple. But what it allows you to do is still plot your figure, and it will look like the figure on the left. The one on the right, scientists don't like. Right? When you use normal numbers, natural numbers, you get curves. Researchers hate curves. They like nice straight lines. So we get that by converting log to the base 2. Now, same components apply. Number of bits is the amount of information you have to process. And it increases as you move to the right on the axis. So a more difficult task is down at the right-hand end. The more difficult the task is, the greater the number of bits. If we're dealing with choice reaction time, what would be at the if right-hand side. How many choices would it be? 5, 6, 10, 15. What would be at the extreme left-hand side? One choice. One choice is really easy. Not many bits of information to process down at this end. Remember there are, just like the previous example, we have a slope and we have the A value which is where it intersects the x-axis. What did A represent last class? It represents exactly the same thing this class. 
What was A last class? The amount of time of the other mechanisms. Last class, what were the other mechanisms? Last class we were studying perception, so the other mechanisms were decision and effector. This class we're studying the decision mechanism, so what are the other mechanisms? Perception and effector. Right? There's only three, and we're studying one of them, so the other two are A. So the amount of time that the other two mechanisms take is represented by A. So A represents the amount of time for the other two mechanisms. That'll be some number on the y-axis. What does B represent? B is the slope. What does it represent? The rate of processing of the mechanism you're studying. So last class, the mechanism you were studying was perceptual mechanism. So last class, B was the rate of processing or the efficiency of the perceptual mechanism. This class, because we're looking at this law, it's the rate of processing of the decision mechanism. All right? So if you understand A and B, in general terms, then you apply it specifically to the mechanism that you happen to be studying. Now, this is what happens when we have skilled versus unskilled performers. The skilled performer, is their slope steeper or flatter? Not a trick. It's flatter, right? A flatter slope. Well, what does that in, uh, represent? As the task gets more difficult, so more difficult is down here. The skilled performer is able to perform at a higher rate of speed. It takes them less time to make the decision. So if we take this point, they take less time to make the decision than the unskilled performer. So a flatter slope represents more skill. They are processing information at a faster rate. Make sense? Flatter slope, good news. Steeper slope, not so much good news. That applies to all three mechanisms. If you get the concept, it doesn't change from perception to decision to effector. Flatter is better. Why does a slope get, get flatter? It's a result of practice. The more you practice, the flatter your slope will be. Why should practice flatten out the line? What happens? Well, first of all, it takes a great deal of practice. Let's take one example. So what they did is they took a four-choice reaction time situation. Four choices, right? So maybe it's two fingers and two fingers. One of those four lights goes on and you respond. You're going to be pretty slow at it. You've actually done it in the lab, a four-choice condition, right? Two choices faster. If you practice 42,000 times on the four-choice condition, you can become like a two-choice condition. 
42,000 times you need to practice on a really Mickey Mouse task. Very simple task. So if it takes that much practice for a simple task, how much practice do you need on something like driving a car or playing a sport? Right? My guess is none of you have ever done 42,000 attempts at anything, shooting foul shots, slap shots, and whatever. Right? That's how much practice is required to make a difference. All right. So what does practice do? You get to bypass the problem solving. If you've done it over and over and over again, you don't have to resolve the problem. You just know what the answer is. The next piece that affects our decision-making abilities is whether or not, or what is the stimulus-response compatibility high or low? So what is the stimulus here? The stimulus here would be one of these lights going on. The response would be you press the appropriate key. So if the middle light goes on, you press the middle key. If the left light goes on, you press the left key. If the right light, right, that's pretty straightforward, easy. Can you imagine doing this task? If the left hand light goes on, you need to press the right hand key. If the middle light goes on, you have to press the left hand key, and the right hand light, you press the middle key. How good do you think you would be at that? I, don't know, I would be brutal. I really struggle in those kinds of things. Like, ah, okay, which is it now? It'd be really slow. With practice, however, you could get better at it. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples that are real world. And they bug the crap out of me, to be quite honest. So this is the elevator in Stong College. I use it like twice a year when I have a cart full of exams. So like I'll use it next Monday. I go down and then I come up at the end of the exam. Where do you think I press to get to the third floor? This is not a trick question, folks. Right? You're going to press the button that's labeled three. High compatibility situation. You want to go to the third floor, you press three. Then I come over here to this building. And I don't imagine any of you have taken the elevator in this building because you're all healthy kin majors and you take the stairs. But if you did take the elevator, I do it twice a year, as I said, this is what I see. What do you think I have to press to get to the basement? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? Right there, B. Except when I press that, it's a chunk of plastic that does nothing. That is the actual button that I need to press. Every time I go into that elevator, I press the white B because that's the obvious choice to press. And it's wrong. Here's an example of low stimulus response compatibility. The obvious B is the wrong thing to press. And it's a little bit dark in there. It's hard to see. Let me give you one more example. At home, you have a stove, most of you. And there are usually four elements on your stove, right? Two at the back, two at the front. How do they line the dials up on the front panel? They put them in a line, right? I want the back right-hand burner. Which of these four dials is the back right-hand burner? There's no relationship. It's like, 
I got to squint and look at the little dots on there, and oh, that's the one that it is. Low compatibility situation. They don't line up. If they put the dials one above the other, then it would be a little more obvious. Oh, bottom dial is the front, back, whatever. But vertical or horizontally makes no sense. If you ever driven a car or truck with a trailer attached, or a lawn tractor with a trailer, and tried to back up, anybody done? When you back up a car or truck with a trailer, what happens? If you want to go that way, which way do you turn the wheel? You turn the wheel the other way. Everything is backwards. It's a real challenge for most of us to back up with a trailer until you practice. Yet, if you watch a skilled truck driver driving one of those massive rigs on the 401, they could back that truck into this spot right here. They just go, boom. You and I, with a little car and a trailer behind it, we'd take 10, 15 attempts to get it in that spot. For us, it's a low compatibility situation. For the skilled performer, it becomes a high compatibility. So, SR compatibility. Think of it as the amount or degree of practice you've had in a particular situation. Imagine if I gave you a multiple choice exam and the options didn't go A, B, C, D. They went D, B, A, C. And so you circle here a letter and then you've got to find that letter on the Scantron and things are all messed up. Like it would take you forever to answer the exam. The higher the compatibility, the more the thing has been practiced in your daily lives. I'll give you a, high, a low compatibility task to do tonight at home. Brush your teeth with your opposite hand. You will have toothpaste from your forehead to your chin. Toothbrushing is really easy. Try it with your other hand. Whoops. Low compatibility situation. You have not rehearsed it or practiced it. So, the reason that the slope of the line gets flatter is because you are able to bypass processing mechanisms. I've seen this before. So if I took the elevator in this building every day, my office is here and I walk up, I mean, you take the elevator morning, noon, and night, I eventually would be very good at pressing the right button. But because I do it twice a year, I always get the wrong ones. And obviously, we'd be in third stage of learning. You become highly skilled. You have high compatibility situation. So the way you think of skilled performers is you are people who have taken unfamiliar stimulus response situations, and you've rehearsed and practiced them so many times, they become high compatibility situations. Right? Lots of practice, turn it into a high compatibility situation. And I've given you numerous examples. I'm going to give you one more. It's called the Stroop test. And you need to look at the slides because your notes are black and white and the slides are color. So what I want you to do, several words are going to appear. I want you to read the word and tell me what color the word is. Tell me the color of the word. So read the words. Red, yellow, green. What are the, but what are the colors? The colors are red, yellow, and green, right? Here's another one. Green, red, yellow. Okay? Here's the next one. Ready? Red. Oops. 
No, it's not red. It's green. It's green, red, and yellow. You see how long it took me to do that? I had to think about it. Right? That's a low compatibility. And if you ever want to stress somebody out, have them do the Stroop test. Imagine doing this for 40 or 50 num lines of things. You've got to read. Oh, what is it? What is it? It's a great way to create anxiety if you want to do a test. Um, you want to measure anxiety in somebody. Have them do this kind of test. And it's like, it's like the, uh, the star tracing you did in the lab. Like some of you looked like you were trying to color in the thing and make it all totally black. You were just back and forth. Low compatibility situation. The next thing that affects our decision mechanism is something referred to as the psychological refractory period. Remember refractory from uh, Professor Sergio when she was talking about action potentials? A refractory is like after a, an axon has fired, or action it has to pause a little bit before the next one. Well, we have the same sort of thing happening. The best way to illustrate this is with faking. Faking is very common in sport. For those of you who don't know, let's pretend I'm playing basketball. I have the ball, you're guarding me, and I want to go around you. So what I might do is pretend to go in one direction, which is the fake. You would start to move that way to prevent it, and I would go in the other direction. That's faking. A very common example of faking in your lives is when you're walking through a crowded hallway and you run into a person and you both move in one direction and then you, you do that dance, I mentioned it before, right? You're faking each other out. You think you're gonna go that, and I'm gonna go this way, and then oops, nope, and then you respond. And what happens? You're really slow to get it right. Why is that? Well, it can be explained by this notion of the psychological refractory period. There's a whole bunch of words here. You can read them, and I would bet that by the time you're finished reading them, you, you don't actually understand what's going on. So I'm going to leave those words there. You can read them in your notes, but I'm going to explain it with this illustration on the second page, right? So or on the next slide. So this is true. For those of you who like words, you can read that. But here's how I'm going to explain it. S1 is stimulus 1. So let's imagine that there has been a stimulus presented to you. And shortly after the first stimulus, there comes a second stimulus. If you begin to respond to the first stimulus, your reaction time to the second stimulus is going to be increased quite a bit. I'm going to go through this a couple more times, okay? So, when does the second stimulus occur? Well, if the second stimulus occurs less than 50 milliseconds after the first stimulus, so 50 milliseconds is, like that was more than 50 milliseconds, the time between those two claps, right? So it's really short. If that's what happens, then the performer treats the two stimulus as though they happened at the same time. So imagine that you're guarding me and we're playing basketball. 
And what I want to do is fake in this direction and go this way. But if I fake, and my fake and my move in this direction is really quickly one after the other, you're not even going to see the first move. You're just going to respond to the second one. That's what the first line is saying. Okay? Now, if you do it well, and here is the sweet spot. If stimulus 2 happens somewhere between 50 and 200 milliseconds after stimulus 1. So the sweet spot is 50 to 200 milliseconds after the first stimulus. Then the reaction time of your opponent will be the normal reaction time plus lots plus a minimum of 100 milliseconds. It can be two or 300 milliseconds more. So if you get the good spot, 50 to 200, then you're going to increase the person's reaction time by a great deal. If the second stimulus is 200 milliseconds or more than 200 milliseconds after, then you're actually not achieving anything. Your opponent's reaction time will be at least normal. So that's this situation. I'm going to fake you out. Ready? And then I go this way. You're going to look and go, what are you doing? Like, you know, right? That, that's not going to work. So that's the case where the second stimulus is too long after the first. So here's how you can represent it pictorially. This bottle is your brain. Here we have stimulus one. Stimulus one goes in and you start to respond to it. Stimulus two happens 100 milliseconds after stimulus one. Is that in the sweet spot? Yes, remember, because sweet spot is 50 to 200. So it's a good second stimulus. If that happens, Here's what goes on inside your brain. You are busy processing stimulus one. Got to go through the decision stage. It's got to go into the effector mechanism. You begin to respond. Meanwhile, stimulus two is trapped in there. It's rattling around. Why? Because we have limited processing capacity. We can't deal with it right now. Eventually, we get around to processing stimulus two. And it comes out, the response to it comes out. Remember, stimulus 2 was 100 milliseconds after stimulus 1. But is it 100 milliseconds later that we begin to respond? Nope. It's, you're going to add normal reaction time plus 100, 200 milliseconds, 300 milliseconds more. So you really mess up your opponent or the person you're walking up to who kind of does that little dance with you, which is why it takes so long to figure it out. Like, it's not a hard problem. I'm going, this, no, you're going that way. And you just go, oh, God, go around me. Right? Takes too long to figure it because of what's happening here. So I want to show you. Uh, a couple of slides. Actually, I'll show you this in a minute. I'll come back to this. 
So here's what the research shows us. Very controlled situation in the lab. The x-axis here is interstimulus interval. How long between S1 and S2? Right? What was the sweet spot? 50 to 200. The dashed line across the middle or the bottom third of the page, this is what your normal reaction time is. The dashed line is your normal reaction time. Now, if stimulus 2 happens, whoa, 500 milliseconds after stimulus 1. Right? So stimulus 2 is 50 milliseconds, sorry, 50 milliseconds. It's right here, after stimulus 1. Notice how much worse than normal reaction time you are. That's what, 225, 230 milliseconds in addition to normal reaction time. So your normal reaction time is here. We've added 230 milliseconds. If you do it second stimulus, 50 after the first one. If you do it 100 milliseconds after the first stimulus, you are adding about 190 milliseconds. So it's still, you're messing up your opponent still. If you do it 200 milliseconds, you're adding another 100 milliseconds to a person's reaction time. So what's the best one? Well, clearly 50 is the best in this particular scenario. But any of those are useful. Notice what happens if S2 is 400 after you are actually, your opponent is actually faster than normal. It's like you're doing this. Wake up, I'm about to do something, right? So if I'm faking and I go, you're going, he's going to do something now, I better get ready. And then I go this way, you're ready for it, right? So a bad fake is worse than no fake at all. You're better off not faking as opposed to doing a fake and then getting beat like this. Okay. I guarantee you no skilled performer has ever taken this and been taught how to do a proper fake, what timing is. They have simply learned it as a result of what? Trial and error. What's the worst way to learn, least efficient way to learn? Trial and error. And yet that's what's happening. I should mention one other thing, sorry, I forgot with, with choice reaction time. When you are driving a car on the 400 series of highways that has three or four lanes, which would be the worst lane to drive in? The middle lane is the worst lane. Why? Because you have to worry about stuff on the right-hand side and stuff on the left. You have at least two choices. You've got a multi-choice situation. You are far better off to be in either the extreme right or extreme left lane. If you're off in the extreme right, there's nothing over here to worry about. It's all over here. You're simplifying the number of choices, so you're going to be faster reacting. Or go way over in the extreme left. But you better be driving fast, because you shouldn't drive in that lane. You're supposed to pass and then get out of the way. But if you're in the left lane, what's off to your left? A cement median. 
you don't have to worry about, there's no choices involved over here. They're all over on this side. Make your life simpler. Simplify it. People don't drive in the right-hand lane because why? They're worried about merging traffic. And why are they worried about merging traffic? Because they use pursuit eye movements. Right? Uh, crash. But you know you don't have to do that now. Just quick glance, then back on the main task. Now, there are situations, particularly in sport, anything that involves physical bodies in motion, where the effects of this PRP are greatly magnified. Right? And so what does that mean? Because performers weigh something, let's pretend you're an athlete on a hockey team, you weigh 200 pounds, you're skating backwards at 15 miles an hour, and the person coming towards me does a, a fake. And I make, I fall for it. I go, oh, I gotta go this way. And then he goes the other way around me. I know I've made a mistake almost instantly. Unfortunately, I'm skating at 15 miles an hour. I weigh 200 plus pounds. I can't instantly change that. So in sport, when you see somebody getting faked out, it looks way worse than it actually is because of momentum. So I want to show you a couple of examples of this in, in uh, sporting situation here. Uh, where are we? PRP. All right. So, the basic idea is to attack before the other team is able to form a good block. All right. So number nine in red didn't think the other guy was going to jump. So he didn't bother jumping. He thought he was faking. Watch again. Right. So this is not PRP. The basic idea is to attack before the other team is able to form a good block. Right. So he didn't think the guy was going to jump. He thought he was just pretending. And he gets burned. So now, let's have a look at PRP in action. So, this guy jumps, red guy hits the ball, the ball's going to come back over to our, the red team side. And now the red guy is going to fake. The blue, from the excited states of America, is going to get faked out. Right? He's going to jump, thinking the guy's going to, you'll see it here now. So he comes in, he pretends to jump. The guy in blue jumps. And at about that point, he goes, oh, shiitake mushrooms. Okay, watch again. Right? He gets faked out. He jumps, and at that point, he knows he's made a mistake. But you can't do anything. Momentum is carrying you upwards. You can't flap your wings and go down. You can't put on the air brakes and stop. You look really bad. But he knew, like 200 milliseconds ago, oh, geez, I just blew that. Nothing you can do about it. Momentum makes these things look way worse. So then he hits the ball, he's on the way down, there's nothing he can do about it, right? Okay. So these things get magnified when we have bodies in motion. All right, next, com next uh, piece that relates to our decision mechanism is anticipation. 
you must use anticipation in open skills. So when you are walking to your next class or through the crowded very hall space, you're anticipating all the time. You see people quite a ways in a oh, they're going to go left, I'll go right, right? That's an example in slower speeds of, of anticipation being necessary so you don't collide with people. Let's take a couple of other situations. Let's talk about cricket, first of all. For those of you who don't know, I'll give you a simplistic description of cricket. Cricket is a lot like baseball. You have a batter and you have someone throwing the ball. In baseball, it's called a pitcher. In cricket, it's called a bowler. Baseball is difficult because the ball is coming 90 miles an hour. It has to go through an area like this to be a strike, and your job is to swing and hit it. But cricket is way harder than baseball, right? Because in cricket, the ball is allowed to bounce. So in baseball, it comes straight in the air. In cricket, it can bounce anywhere it wants in front. And if it hits your wicket, you're going to be out. So your job is to protect this little area. Baseball is a true course, right? Pitcher throws it. Hmm. Cricket, it's going to bounce, change direction. Yikes, how do I respond? So. The ball is traveling 90 miles an hour, the same as it is in baseball. And it's going to bounce 30 feet in front of you. That means you have 200, where's the mouse? Here we are, 230 milliseconds to respond. Most of you, your reaction time is in the 200 millisecond area. That's just reaction time. That's got nothing to do with swinging or thinking or it, just. Reaction time. Now, what is anticipation? We'll come back to the cricket thing in a moment. Anticipation is using learned cues. How do you learn cues? Practice. That's another reason you practice. This, not just learning the motor activity, it's learning the perceptual cues. We learn cues so that we can predict future events. Oh, I know which way you're going to step because I've Pick that up, the cues from you previously. Some of you may have heard of a hockey player named Wayne Gretzky. He stated, I skate to where the puck is going to be. In hockey, you can chase the puck and you look like you're working really hard. Unfortunately, you're working stupid. The puck's going around the rink. Why don't you just skate over and cut it off? Chase after, oh, he's working so hard. What a hardworking player. Yeah, what a stupid player. Cut it off, right? So anticipation. Skilled players look lazy because they can anticipate where things are going to be. So in baseball, in hockey, in lots of other activities, the common denominator, common factor, is that you have to solve a problem and you have a minimal amount of time to respond. The example in cricket I gave you, if the ball bounces 30 feet in front of you, and 30 feet is about from me to that uh, wall cabinet, right? bounces there going 90 miles an hour, I have to respond. If it bounces 15 feet in front of me, which is about here, right? I got 115 milliseconds. You can't react that fast. 
your best reaction time is probably 130, maybe 150. So how are you going to hit the ball if you only have less than 115 milliseconds to respond? So 115 milliseconds is less time than reaction time. You can't possibly respond to it. Let me give you another example. One of the best boxers in the world was a man named Muhammad Ali. He died about a year ago, year and a half ago. In his prime, he was an amazing athlete. In fact, he was quite boastful. He said, I am the greatest. Because I'm so fast, no one has ever been able to hit me. Look at my face. Boxers' faces usually aren't that pretty because they're getting hit and cut. And He was a very, very attractive man. No question about it. And in his younger days, he never got hit. It was amazing. Most boxers box like this. Their hands are here. They're protecting themselves. He used to dance around the ring with his hands down here. Huh? Go ahead. Come on. Hit me. Come on. I dare you. And then he'd punch you. And then he'd oh, go ahead. Come on. It was amazing to watch. And so everybody thought he must have had incredible reaction time, right? Like he throws a punch and they go, ah, oh, you fool, you missed. Hey, you missed again. And that's how cocky he was. So they got him into the lab. Actually, they took the lab to him. They got him in the ring. And his reaction time to light was 190 milliseconds. Most of you are better than that. And yet all of you in the ring would get your brains bashed out so it's not about reaction time. The amount of time it would take me to throw a punch, 16 inches. Don't worry, I won't hit you hard. Um, right? The amount of time it would take to throw a punch this far is 40 milliseconds. Bang. I can hit him like three times before he realized, oh, I better move. Okay? So somehow, boxers and other athletes must use anticipation. Otherwise, they'd be knocked out cold in the first second of a fight. Somehow they figured out the cues. And they're not obvious, like, okay, I'm winding up now, get ready, here it comes. No, no. It's some kind of muscle, little twitch somewhere, or maybe your face does something that indicates, oh, here comes a punch. Who knows what it is, but they've learned it. In some martial arts, like Taekwondo, Karate, Kung Fu, where they spar with each other, you're actually allowed to use your feet to hit the opponent. Now, when you box, you only have to watch the hands, because that's all that can hit you. Imagine a boxer gets in the ring and all of a sudden, oh, that's not fair, right? So, in martial arts, they stand further away, because now you have to look from my hands all the way down to my feet. It's going to take you longer to pick those cues up. So they stand further away. I mean, they stand further away so they can use their feet to kick as well. But that's one of the reasons that they stand further apart. So anticipation is essential if you're going to be able to perform in most motor skills. So let's summarize some stuff that we know about anticipation and skilled performers. First of all, they use the appropriate perceptual cues. And I've given you numerous examples of this already. How do you know when you're driving your car that somebody's about to change lanes and the jerk doesn't signal? How do you know? Well, you might see them look over their shoulder. You might see them edge towards the uh, center line. 
right? You use cues to get anticipation. Hockey goalies, we've already talked about this one. Experienced, good goaltenders spend more time looking at the stick than they do the puck. Why? Because the puck is a chunk of black rubber that doesn't give you any cues. The angle of the stick gives you a number of cues, so pay attention to that. One further example of a goaltender's uh, study, they took goaltenders and they showed them a video of a person taking a shot. Just before the person took the shot, they turned the film off. It's called occluded studies. They stopped the film. They had three conditions. This is the amount of time before the shot is taken. Take a guess at which condition the goaltenders are going to be best able to predict the outcome. They're best able in the 85 millisecond because they've seen more cues. If you stop it 300 milliseconds ahead, they see less cues and are therefore not able to predict. They're not able to use anticipation. The more cues they see, in other words, the longer the film goes, the better they are at predicting. The film is still stopped before the shot is taken, and they can still, they get pretty good at, at predicting where it's going to go. And the final one, baseball pitchers. Imagine you're coaching baseball, and you've got a little batter there. And you say, okay, batter, what are you going to watch? You've got to hit the ball. Well, you're going to watch the ball, obviously, right? Oh, yeah? How come if you do a study and you block off the lower half of the pitcher's body, how come that affects how, how well they can predict where the ball is going to go? If you're watching the ball as I throw it, why do you care what my legs are doing? And the answer is because there are cues given off by the way you step, either the length of it, the speed of it, who knows what they are. But if you prevent skilled performers from seeing some aspect of the entire pitcher's body, they are not as successful predicting where the ball's going to go. Who would have thought something like that? And that's the case in almost every motor skill we do. We don't know what skilled performers actually look at. We just assume they watch the ball or the puck or the steering wheel or whatever it is. All right, we'll stop there. Monday we have the midterm and then we have two more lectures after that. Have a good rest of the day, folks.